everyone. I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value Words for Granted as a free educational resource, you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash words for granted. For as little as a buck a month, which is less than what you pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain access to bonus episodes and ad-free episodes. You can also support the podcast and access bonus episodes by becoming a member on the Himalaya app. The most recent bonus episode looks at the etymology of the words vandal and vandalism, which derive from the name of an ancient Germanic tribe. Last but not least, you can also make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. All right, let's get on to today's episode, part three in a series on common English nouns derived from ethnic groups. Thus far in this series, we've looked at the etymologies of goth, bohemian, and vandal. The stories of these words' evolutions all have something in common. When they were first borrowed into the language, goth, bohemian, and vandal were all pejorative or negative terms. Over time, the connotations of bohemian and goth have become less black and white, but make no mistake— they were originally insults steeped in cultural biases against the ethnicities from which they derive. These words are centuries old, so the passage of time has neutralized their insensitivity, but if you listen to the previous episodes in full, then you know that the actual meanings associated with these ethnic insults had almost nothing to do with the actual ethnicities they were insulting. For example, the Goths did not make Gothic architecture. The original French artists called Bohemians did not come from Bohemia, and the Vandals' vandalism of Rome was pretty tame for an ancient sacking. For more detailed accounts of how the meanings of these words became warped over time, I suggest listening to those episodes in full. Today, we'll be looking at the origins of Philistine, a word that derives from the name of a now-extinct ancient Middle Eastern people, and its evolution as a common noun fits the aforementioned criteria. The Merriam-Webster Online Dictionary defines Philistine with a lowercase p as, quote, a person who is guided by materialism and is usually disdainful of intellectual or artistic values, end quote. But the historical Philistines weren't exactly anti-intellectual art haters. As we'll see, the Philistines with a capital P were not Philistines with a lowercase p at all. The means by which the latter derives from the former is the result of a very specific and arbitrary historical circumstance, which we'll cover later on. To start things off, I'd like to investigate the etymology of Philistine with a capital P, that is, the historical ethnic group, and I also want to tell you a little bit about who they were. The story of the Philistines with a capital P takes us back at least 3,000 years to the land of Philistia, which partially corresponds to modern-day Palestine. Philistine, Palestine, can you sense a connection there? Indeed, the two words are cognate, and we'll be exploring what one has to do with the other. So, down the rabbit hole we go. A royal Egyptian papyrus from the 1100s BCE declares that Pharaoh Ramesses III defeated a group of people called the Pelset, and it's believed that this is the earliest reference in the written record to the Philistines. 
a royal Assyrian text from the 7th century BCE, half a millennium later, describes a treaty with a group of people called the Pelishti, and it's believed that this is also a reference to the Philistines. However, these references are brief and completely obscure. If references like these were the Philistines' only claim to fame, they would be unknown outside the realm of niche scholarship. But, as it turns out, the Philistines play an important role in the most popular and best-selling book of all time, the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, also known as the Hebrew Bible. According to the Hebrew Bible, the Pelishtim, Hebrew for Philistines, were the Israelites' western neighbor in the land of Canaan and their main geopolitical enemy before the rise of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. But before we examine the relationship between these two ancient peoples, let's hang on to the topic of etymology for just a minute. These Egyptian, Assyrian, and Hebrew words for the Philistines are all cognate. This etymological consistency across languages and across centuries implies that they probably derive from the name by which the Philistines called themselves, which was... we don't know. The Philistines left behind almost no written records, and we therefore know very little about their language. Because of the scarcity of evidence, linguists can't even say for sure to what language family the Philistine language belongs. According to modern archaeology and a recent DNA study performed in the summer of 2019, the Philistines migrated to the Mediterranean coast of what is today Palestine from somewhere in Europe, probably Greece or Cyprus. The few Philistine inscriptions that we have are written in a Greek script, and archaeologists have unearthed early Philistine pottery that is closely related to pottery from Mycenaean Greece. Some etymologists have suggested that the ultimate root of Philistine is a corruption of Pelasgian, a catch-all Greek term for the native peoples who were forerunners to the classical ancient Greeks, but this isn't universally accepted. The Bible tells of nearly a dozen battles and conflicts between the Israelites and the Philistines, and because the Bible is told from the Israelites' point of view, there's always a negative bias against the Philistines. The Philistines left us no literature in which they could defend themselves, so they are forever remembered by history as the bad guys. The most famous biblical conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines is the story of David and Goliath, in which a young David, future king of Israel, defeats Goliath, a Philistine giant, with a slingshot and a stone. In another famous Bible story, the Israelite superhero-esque character of Samson defeats an army of Philistines using only the jawbone of a donkey. By the 6th century BCE, the Philistines disappear from written history after being conquered by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II. However, this brief overview of the Philistines in the Bible overlooks an inconsistency of the actual Hebrew word Pelishtim as it appears in the original Hebrew of the biblical texts. Biblical scholars tend to agree that the word Pelishtim actually has two distinct meanings depending on which book of the Bible you're reading. There are the Philistines of the Torah, aka the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, and the Philistines of Deuteronomistic history, aka the books of Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and Jeremiah. The authors of the Hebrew Bible, and ancient authors generally, didn't have the tools of modern ethnography at their disposal, leading to inconsistencies in the names they used for ethnic groups. The alleged Philistines of the Torah 
probably comprise both Egyptian and Greek foreigners conflated under a single name. In the books of Deuteronomistic history, the Hebrew Pelishtim is used as both a word for the actual Philistines of Philistia and as a generic term for any foreigners living within the proximity of the Israelites' sacred land. When the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek in the 3rd century BCE, the Greek translators picked up on these two different usages. When Pelishtim appears in the Deuteronomistic history books, it was translated into Greek as alophuloi, literally foreigners. This is worth noting because, usually, the names of ethnic groups aren't translated from language to language. Usually, they are transliterated, which is what happens when you take a word from a foreign language and make it fit into the phonetic conventions of another language. For example, Egypt is ultimately an English transliteration of the Greek Aegyptus. In English translations of 1 Samuel 17.8, the Philistine giant Goliath boasts, I am the Philistine. This is a literal translation of the Hebrew, Anoki ha Pelishti. However, the Greek translation of this reads, Ego aimi alofulos, literally, I am the foreigner. The irony to this Greek translation of the Hebrew Pelishtim is that the Israelites arrived in Canaan after the Philistines did, technically making the Israelites the foreigners on the Philistines' land. However, from the Israelites' point of view, Canaan was their promised land given to them by their god, so even if the Philistines had lived in Canaan for longer, they were still foreigners occupying sanctified land. This is not the only linguistic irony baked into the story of the Philistines. As we know, today, the Philistines' name is associated with dull, uncultured, materialistic people who are hostile toward art and culture. We're not ready to get into this modern development of the word just yet, but while we still have an image of the ancient Philistines fresh in our minds, I'd like to point out that they were not actually dull, uncultured art haters, and that the Israelites never even accused them of such. In spite of the negative bias against them in the Hebrew Bible, the Philistines were a fairly sophisticated ancient people, certainly more sophisticated than the Israelites were at the time of the two peoples' conflicts. To put it simply, the Israelites led a simple village lifestyle off in the hills, while the Philistines were a group of wealthy, worldly, seafaring expansionists. A 2016 excavation of Philistine burial sites in Ashkelon revealed highly decorated jugs, exquisite jewelry, and state-of-the-art weapons. The Philistines had become expert ironsmiths while the Israelites were still working with bronze. Before jumping ahead two centuries and investigating how our modern sense of Philistine emerged, I want to look at the relationship between Philistine and Palestine. But first, a quick word from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Simple Contacts. Simple Contacts has made it easy and affordable to find the most comfortable and healthiest contacts for your eyes. You can do it straight from your phone or your computer without a visit to the doctor's office. If you visit simplecontacts.com slash words for granted trial and use the code words for granted trial at checkout, you'll get a 10 day trial completely free. You don't even have to pay for shipping. If you love your contacts, you can get your new lenses starting at just a dollar a day. Here's how it works. You start by completing a questionnaire about the contacts you currently wear, and then you take a vision test from your phone so the doctors at Simple Contacts can assess your vision. 
Next, Simple Contacts will recommend a daily disposable lens based on your eyes, your preference, and the brand you wear today. Then, those lenses get shipped to your door, and you get to try them out for 10 days. Again, use the promo code WORDSFORGRANTEDTRIAL to get a free 10-day trial. If you like them, after the trial period, prices start at just a dollar a day. If you'd rather go back to your old brand, no problem. Unlike other online contact lens companies out there, you won't be getting low-quality contacts that irritate your eyes and cause long-term damage. Simple Contacts only sells doctor-recommended lenses from established brands like Johnson & Johnson. With over 8,000 five-star reviews, they've got to be doing something right. Full disclaimer, the Simple Contacts vision test is not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. So, check out Simple Contacts at simplecontacts.com slash wordsforgrantedtrial and enter the code wordsforgrantedtrial to get your 10-day trial for free. Alright, enough about contact lenses. Let's get back on to today's story. In most modern English translations of the Bible, the region inhabited by the Philistines is called Philistia. This is ultimately an anglicization of the Hebrew place name Pleshet. Philistia is a historical term. You won't find it on a map today, which makes it a geopolitically neutral term. However, in the King James Version of the Bible, which was published in 1611, by the way, in four instances, Pleshet is translated not as Philistia, but as Palestina, or Palestine. Unlike Philistia, Palestine is anything but a geopolitically neutral term. Because of the sensitivity surrounding the term Palestine, more recent English translations of the Bible tend to avoid it. But nonetheless, this raises a significant question. What is the historical connection between these two words, and on what basis are they interchangeable? In short, Philistia and Palestine are both descendants of the same ultimate root word, that is, the long-lost name by which the Philistines called themselves. Philistia is a direct continuation of Pleshet, the Hebrew rendering of this original word, while Palestine comes from Palestine. The Greek Palestine first appears in Herodotus's histories in the 5th century BCE. The Greeks had relations with the Philistines, or Palestinoi, independently of the Israelites, so this Greek form of the word is presumably a direct borrowing of the native Philistine word for their land, not a second-hand borrowing of it from Hebrew. So, did the Hebrew word Philistia and the Greek word Palestine mean the same thing to their respective speakers? A state or a region is the same state or region by any other name, right? Well, not exactly, especially not in the ancient world. In the Hebrew Bible, the Israelite notion of Philistia, land of the Philistines, denotes the five coastal cities of Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron, collectively known as the Pentopolis. However, when Herodotus refers to a, quote, district of Syria called Palestine located between Phoenicia and Egypt, end quote, he explicitly describes the coastal pentopolis of Philistia and more eastern inland regions including Judah and the Jordan Valley. In the centuries following Herodotus, many Greek writers used Pilistine with a similar designation, and this trend continued through the Roman era, where the Greek Pilistine was borrowed into Latin as Palestina. Up until the mid-2nd century CE, Palestina was a term that referred to a geographical region, not an official province, kingdom, or state. 
It wasn't until the Eastern Roman provinces of Syria and Judea were merged into Syria-Palestina that Palestine existed in any official capacity on the map. During the Byzantine iteration of the Roman Empire, Syria-Palestina was divided up into Palestina Prima, Palestina Secunda, and Palestina Salutaris. This preservation of the name of the Philistines' homeland, long after the Philistines themselves ceased to exist, is similar to the place name Bohemia's etymological preservation of the Celtic boy tribe two millennia after the boy ceased to exist. For the full story on that, you know where to go. When the Arabs conquered the Roman-Palestinian provinces during the 7th century, they kept the province's long-standing name. Philistina, as it was pretty conservatively borrowed into Arabic, is still the Arabic word for the modern state of Palestine, and it's the name by which Palestinians call their state today. While the terms Philistina, Palestina, and Palestine were all used in Middle and Early Modern English, Palestine ultimately won out. At the turn of the 20th century, when the Ottoman Empire ruled the Levant, Palestine was used as a general regional term for the land between the southwestern Mediterranean coast of the Levant and the Jordan River. However, in the wake of World War II and the formation of Israel, this general usage of Palestine as a regional term is complicated and politically fraught. Hopefully, you found that digression about the relationship between Philistine and Palestine interesting. Now, let's turn to what this whole episode is supposed to be about, the evolution of Philistine as a common noun. This takes us back to one fateful day in 1693 in the German college town of Jena. On this day, a fight broke out between a group of students at Jena University and the university's watchmen, you know, like proto-policemen or security guards. I couldn't find any information on what the fight was about, but it resulted in the watchmen retaliating against the students and killing an innocent boy who apparently had nothing to do with the initial commotion. At the boy's funeral, a clergyman gave a sermon that quoted from the 16th chapter of the biblical book of Judges. Judges 16.20 begins with the line, quote, The Philistines be upon you, Samson, end quote, and apparently, this line really struck a chord with the schoolboys in attendance at the funeral. As mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the Philistines are the bad guys in the biblical story of Samson, in which Samson, an Israelite superman, you might say, defeats an entire army of Philistines with a donkey's jawbone. The German phrase Philister über der Simson erupted throughout the streets of Jena as a slogan of protest against the watchmen. Eventually, the German Philister was adapted by the schoolboys as an insult against all of the townspeople in Jena who weren't affiliated with the university. These were mostly working-class people who would have been stereotyped as conservative-minded and materialistic members of the bourgeois. Perhaps we could think of this as an esoteric synonym for townie. Philistines represented the town in the traditional town-and-gown metaphor. This derogatory usage of Philister became standard university slang throughout Germany, and by the late 18th century, just over a hundred years after the incident at Jena, Philister was being used by German Enlightenment figures such as Goethe and Schiller. In a jointly written publication called Wortsatz, Goethe and Schiller use Philister to describe their critics who are, quote, old-fashioned rationalists who have no feeling for contemporary poetry, end quote. Elsewhere, Goethe writes, quote, 
The Philistine not only ignores all conditions of life which are not his own, but also demands that the rest of mankind should fashion its mode of existence after his own. End quote. Side note, before the incident at Jena, according to the prominent 19th century German etymologist Frederick Klug, Germans had used the term Philister as a positive term denoting someone strong and virile, like the biblical Philistine giant Goliath. The English term Philistine never seems to have had this connotation, and there's not much written about this earlier usage of the German word available in English, but I thought I would mention it anyway. Through the works of German Enlightenment writers, this sense of Philister spread throughout Europe, giving Philistine and its various cross-linguistic cognates a new meaning, the meaning we have today. The first English usage of this sense of Philistine, derived from the German universities, appears in the writings of Scottish intellectual Thomas Carlyle in the early 19th century. It appears in an essay called The State of German Literature, directly in reference to Goethe and Schiller. However, it wasn't until the English writer Matthew Arnold elaborately described what he dubbed as Philistinism in a work dedicated to the German writer Henrik Hein that the term gained widespread acceptance. Arnold clearly lays out his notion of what a Philistine is, and instead of paraphrasing, I'd like to give you his explanation in his own words. It's poetic and sassy, and it's always interesting when the popularizer of a term offers insight into their own views on that term. So, long quote. Philistinism. We have not the expression in English. Perhaps we have not the word because we have so much of the thing. At Soli, I imagine they did not talk much of solecisms, and here, at the headquarters of Goliath, nobody talks of Philistinism. The French have adapted the term épicier, grocer, to designate the sort of being whom the Germans designate by the term Philistine, but the French term, besides that it casts a slur upon a respectable class composed of living and susceptible members, while the original Philistines are dead and buried long ago, is really, I think, in itself much less apt and expressive than the German term. Efforts have been made to obtain in English some equivalent to Philistère or Epicier. Mr. Thomas Carlyle has made several such efforts. Quote, respectability with its thousand gigs, end quote, he says. Well, the occupant of every one of those gigs is, Mr. Carlyle means, a Philistine. However, the word respectable is far too valuable a word to be thus perverted from its proper meaning. If the English are ever to have a word for the thing we are speaking of, and so prodigious are the changes which the modern spirit is introducing that even we English shall perhaps one day come to want such a word, I think we had better take the term Philistine itself. End quote. Following these initial musings, the study of Philistinism as a cultural phenomenon of anti-intellectualism became one of the main inquiries of Arnold's work. In his later and more popular work, Culture and Anarchy, published in 1869, Arnold further hones in on his definition of the modern Philistine. Quote, Now, the use of culture is that it helps us, by means of its spiritual standard of perfection, to regard wealth as but machinery, and not only to say as a matter of words that we regard wealth as machinery, but really to perceive and feel that it is so. If it were not for this purging effect wrought upon our minds by culture, the whole world, the future, as well as the present, would inevitably belong to the Philistines. The people who believe most that our greatness and welfare are proved by our being rich, and who most give their lives and thoughts to becoming rich, are just the people whom we call the Philistines. 
end quote. According to Google Ngram, an online search engine that uses the corpus of published works from the 1800s onwards to track word frequencies over time, the usage of Philistine as a common noun exponentially begins increasing in the 1870s, following the publication of Culture and Anarchy. From the 1870s through today, the frequency of this usage has gone up and down, curiously peaking in the 1970s in both American and British English. I haven't found any scholarship that explains this. Perhaps it was a popular term used by intellectuals in the counterculture movements early in the decade, but I haven't found any evidence in support of that either. If you have any insight into this, shoot me an email at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. So, there you have it. Another common noun derived from an ethnic group whose meaning has close to nothing to do with the actual ethnic group from which it derives. All right, that's it for this one. If you love the show, again, you can make a monthly contribution at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted, or you can become a member of Words for Granted on the Himalaya app. I also encourage you to leave a rating and review on whatever podcast player you use because those really help the show grow and give me feedback about how I can make the show better. I'm on Twitter at, at @wordsforgranted and Facebook as Words for Granted, and you can email me directly with questions, comments, and concerns at wordsforgranted.com gmail.com. All right. Have a great day. I'll talk to you soon.